0: Good morning. Welcome to, to Faith this morning. We've been um, in a sermon series in the, the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to continue in the second Timothy when we're done, 1 Timothy. but uh, We're calling it Fight the Good Fight. Fight the good fight, Paul's words to Timothy. In this series, um, we've noticed that there are two leaders at, at the church at Ephesus, where, where Timothy is, uh, who have been removed. They have been removed. We saw that in the first chapter. There are wolves among the sheep. And Timothy has been sent there to bring order into that situation, to find leaders who might step in and serve in this church that was founded by the Apostle Paul and had a wonderful, powerful outreach to the region of Asia Minor. You see that in the book of Acts, chapters 18, 19, and 20. Well, who, who should be the replacement? How do you find a new leader? Is it a, a popularity contest? <laughs> Is it the first one who volunteers gets to serve? We have a ministry fair today, and it's great. We want volunteers, but leaders and elders and deacons in the church of God, is it just volunteers? So Paul sends this letter to Timothy and to the leaders of the church, the people of the church, giving them a list of qualifications. And we're going to see that list in a minute, what it looks like. But how should we view a list like this? Leaders in the church, how do we view that? There's a man who professes to have faith in Jesus Christ, and yet he... He lacks meekness and violence, or, or maybe he is a womanizer and he runs the block to talk to, to do more than talk with pimps and prostitutes. That's the man, and he's a professed believer in Jesus Christ, and you ch- you find that out, and you challenge him at the things that are going on in the life he's living, and his retort to you is, "But I'm not a leader in the church. Well, that's not for me. The standards of godliness are for leaders. The Bible says that the, lead, the husband that." that, that, that the leaders are to have those standards. I'm just a member of the church. Does he get off the hook because he's not a leader? No. Absolutely not. And so I want us to, as we look at this list that we're going to look at, I want us to have, to have a, a, an orientation towards them. The, these are high standards, but they're not just high standards for leaders. These are, this list is primarily about what godliness looks like in our lives. That's what it is. And all believers are called to pursue holiness and godliness. As we look at the list, is God calling each of us to an absolute standard of perfection so that unless we reach that absolute standard, we cannot lead and serve? Well, I hope not, or I will be sitting down right now no we stand in the righteousness of Christ and in Christ alone and that's what we believe when we when we come to faith his righteousness is credited to us so it's not absolute perfect righteousness that God that this list is all about no is it an exhaustive list is this all the things that are involved in a godly life no there's not there's more more than this but these are some of the key things that Paul wants to do. Paul is painting a picture for Timothy and for us and for the church at Ephesus and for the church through all generations of of what godliness looks like and what is we're to pursue. The the character qualities are, are not just for officers but for each one of us. It's that simple. The primary qualifications and responsibility of the elder and of a deacon is to be a role model of righteousness and godliness. An example for the flock and for the world. Now, so I want us to, as we hear this list, I want to think about you know, on two levels. One, is it's a, it's, a, it's a list of leadership qualifications, but it's also a list of godliness. What does it mean to be a godly person? Which we also strive to become in Christ. The, the passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at this entire passage uh, this morning. ESV translation. Listen to God's Word. The saying is Trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, nor slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. God's, God's word for us today. Leaders for the household of God, leaders for God's household. You know, God gives clear standards so the church might discern who he is prepared to lead, this church. The outline is pretty clear in, in this passage. We're going to talk about the calling of officers in the church in general, and then the character of the elders of the church, the character of the deacons of the church, and then a message at the end, which I call a musical message of the church, the musical message of the church. First, verses 1 and 8, the calling of the officers. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then verse 8, deacons likewise. An aspiring a noble task. The, 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 the foundational offices of the church, Ephesians 4.11 is a very important verse. It's a church planting context. And he, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Apostles are specially commissioned by Jesus in the foundational era of the Christian faith. They had a unique authority over doctrine and and to, to plant and, and, and build, start uh, multiple churches in the empire. And then prophets were specially gifted men and women who had supernatural insight from God, especially it was necessary in light of the still developing New Testament of the first century. And the third foundational office is, is evangelists. These were those who were given the special giftedness and authority to plant and establish new churches. And ministries under the under the apostles these are evangelists in the new testament there are also ongoing or enduring officers we saw in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 shepherds and teachers those are continuing ongoing ministry uh, offices but in our denomination we, we we use the primary terms we use are the ruling elder the teaching elder and the deacon three offices ruling elder Teaching elder and deacon. I have a chart here that sort of breaks this down for us. The elder, by the way, the word elder comes from the synagogue world, from the religious world of the, of the Jewish synagogue. And, and the, uh, the, the, the Greek term is presbyteros, Sound like something you're familiar with? Presbyterian. Presbyteros is the Greek word for elder. This refers to, to the status, the dignified status and maturity of, of, of the person who holds that uh, office. Uh, this person is also called an overseer or a, a bishop. The, the, uh, this is a superintendent. This comes from the marketplace world, and um, the you might you might know the well the, the Greek word is episkopos. Sound familiar? Episcopalian bishop, those superintending over others. Um, we believe that that's the fun, one of the functions of uh, the elders, and then pastor or shepherd. Pastor is a Latin word. It's a pastoral word, uh, the, the Greek language, it's from the agrarian society, from the agricultural life. So, so it, it, it's the status of this individual, the the function of this individual, and the heart of this individual. It's one individual who, who has this uh, office, the, the elder or bishop or pastor or shepherd. This one, one person with similar, with different, Titles due to the different functions. One, one uh, several passages we won't look at them, but um, in Acts and First Peter and Titus, you can see how in those passages the same person. These words are used for the same person, person, the same office. It's very clear that these are different functions of, of one with the same office. The last one is is Philippians chapter one, the introduction to that letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with Overseers and deacons. Elders and deacons. Overseers and deacons. So those are the two primary uh, 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 terms. Elders, we believe, teaching elders and ruling elders, and deacons. And so that's what we're talking about in, this, in, in the passage today. Now, the three offices that we're talking about reflect the three offices of Jesus Christ that we know in Scripture. Another chart. Uh, Christ was prophet, priest, and king. Maybe you understand that. In the Old Testament, Prophets were anointed from God, priests were anointed by God, kings were anointed by God, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all those offices. The the prophets, those with gifts of speaking and discernment, priests, those with gifts of mercy and justice, kings, those with gifts of order and administration, and in the New Testament church, we believe that the teaching elder fulfills the New Testament role of a prophet, Uh, the deacon fulfills the role of the priest and the ruling elder fulfills the role of king. So what are we? We are the body of Christ, and we we, we represent Christ to the world, and the offices, the three offices reflect the three offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. First verse says, if anyone aspires to the office of of overseer, he desires a noble task. Aspiring. This is desiring. It's okay to desire to be a leader because you want to desire to be a godly person, and those who are godly people become leaders. It's not wrong to, to aspire it. It's just, this talks about kind of the internal subjective uh, wish or, or, or desire. It's okay. Uh, it, it, he says it's a noble, a noble task. It's honorable. Now, in our world today, people don't perceive uh, religious professionals or even elders and deacons as noble. Maybe, oh, you're a preacher man. Maybe on a job they call you rev because uh, you go to church, you know. the the world doesn't always perceive it as a a noble thing to serve at the church and go to church and worship Jesus but let me tell you God does it's a noble thing it's honorable to be part of God's work in the world and it is work he says it's a task it's a word that means work energy hard labor blood sweat and tears it's work it's not just a position where everybody says you're a great person Well, you have a position no it's work (laughs) when you aspire to be an officer you aspire to get to work for Jesus that's what that's what he's saying. It's good to aspire, but it's a noble task. Work. I I came to Baltimore in 1976 after college. That was a few years ago. Some of you weren't even around in 1976. But I, I joined a church very quickly, Forest Park uh, Presbyterian Church across town. And um, I was also working with Intervarsity uh, Christian Fellowship with campus with, with students on the campuses in Baltimore. Um, I, I actually, many of you don't know, in 1983, a few years after coming to Baltimore, I was ordained as a ruling elder in that church. I became one of the elders in that church. Um, I was re- I had been married and I, but God, God was already at that point doing something in my heart. God was beginning to nudge me and, and, and prompt me and, and say that, you know you're, you're working with students and you know there may be more for you. Now I didn't know at the time that my pastor, was ahead of me. God had nudged him before he nudged me. My pastor was setting me up to be around presbytery meetings and and other pastors and he was training me because he saw in me some pastoral uh, uh, gifts that God had, had uh, given me. So, but, but so God began to nudge me and, and, and there was a, there was a, a, I call it an internal calling that was beginning to happen in my heart but but you know just because someone thinks they're called it doesn't mean they're called. There has to be a, an external confirmation. And again, my pastor had that. He had it before I had it that I was called. And the others in that church, as they uh, uh, encouraged me and as they said, go to seminary, go go take Greek. but that was a, that was tough. <laughs> Study Greek. And then uh, uh, they encouraged me to go to, to go away to Chicago seminary, and I did that. And and I just kind of I passed all the tests. I guess as God began to confirm. That, uh, that, yes, maybe he was calling me to uh, a broader ministry, a pastoral kind of a ministry. Um, I, I took an internship to our presbytery, and I was licensed to preach. Again, more confirmations uh, than maybe God was calling me. But you know what? It takes more than just an internal nudge or even the, 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 the external confirmation of some people. Uh, it, it also takes um, some objective um observation of what the life and character of a man of God ought to be. A pastor, an elder, or deacon. There are objective criteria. And that's what Paul is giving to Timothy here. He's giving him the objective criteria whereby we can he can see you need more leaders in your church, and here's the objective criteria whereby you might may measure their life. So so a man might be gifted he may be qualified in his, with a heart and passion, and God, God is the one who, who equips and prepares a leader, but it's up for the church, looking at the, the objective criteria to, to endorse or to recognize those whom God has equipped and prepared. There's a, there's a real caution in the New Testament, James chapter 3, verse 1, that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach would be judged with greater strictness. Every pastor, every elder, every deacon needs to be careful. Every every Sunday school teacher, those who teach, those who have leadership responsibilities in God's church, we reflect and we represent Jesus Christ before people, before our our flocks and before a watching world. The calling is what we're talking about. The second thing in the text is verses 2 to 7. This is the character of the elders, the character of the elders of God's church. We have a chart here. That that will that gives you the breakdown the fourteen uh, things that 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 um, Paul lists here in this uh, passage and I, I like uh, William Henderson, the um, the commentator who says that there's they're broken into two categories there's uh, his, his character and relationships inside the household of God and then there's his reputation outside the household of God very important the first, the verse verse two is is uh, his, um, his, 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 just a basic word, above reproach. This is the first one. It's quite interesting. It's, it's kind of a catch-all one. Um, does not mean he must be perfect or sinless. We've already said that. It means that, that when the word is out that this man is now a leader in the church, there shouldn't be a big surprise. That's what it means. It means when, when, when it's heard that he's now a deacon or he's now an officer in the church, there shouldn't be, Him? He's above reproach. He, he, the the people in the church when they hear, they say, okay, yeah, God's at work in his life. He's a sincere man who loves God, seeking to, to be faithful, above reproach. The second one has gotten a lot of ink. It's it's the husband of one wife. The context. One of the, the context is, of course, in the Old Testament, God allowed polygamy, and even in the, the, the church, the, the areas of the empire, there was polygamy. Lots of polygamy that was going on, multiple marriages going on. And I think that what God is doing through Paul is saying, I allowed it in the Old Testament church, but now in the New Testament church, no, we're going to go back to my original intention: one man married to one woman. You, 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 faithful to that one wife, not multiple wives. And so Paul says, Timothy, look, you may have people in your congregation who are, who are in polygamous relationships and that's been allowed and God has allowed that, but no more. Your officers set, them, set, the, set the standard. They have to be men who, who are not just in marriages, but in, in solid marriages. Um, and let me remind you that, that Paul, a single man, is talking to Timothy, a single man. And that Jesus was a single man. The God man. Now, now, Paul is not mandating that officers must be married, nor is he mandating that he that an officer can't be a widower, or, or, nor a man who's gone under a biblically sanctioned divorce. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying that for a man to be qualified to serve as an elder, he must be literally a one-woman man committed to his wife. Hendrickson says this, an overseer must be a man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his one and only wife, who. Being one who, being married, does not, in pagan fashion, enter into immoral relationships with another woman. That's that's a rock solid foundational thing. When I was in seminary, um, my mom and dad came off, and I was in Chicago. They came off from from, from drove up from um, DC area, and I remember never forget that my dad said, "Hey, let's go for a walk." We walked on the, the, the campus, and he said, "My dad, you know, he was, I think he was a deacon by then. He became a deacon later in life, but he said." Um, I want to talk. And I think this is a prepared talk, you know, one of those kind of talks. He said, um, I'm proud of the fact that you're going into the ministry. I'm really proud of that. He said, "I um, first, I always thought that you were going to make a lot of money playing baseball, but you couldn't hit a curveball. That was a joke. I remember that joke. But and then after that, he said, two things, two points of advice. I don't want you to forget these things, and I haven't. He said, the first thing is, don't be a lazy minister. There are a lot of ministers who work on Sunday and don't work the rest of the week, but get money. Work. It's a work. Work hard. Put your energy into what you're doing. It's a calling. Just love the people. And the second thing he said was don't be a womanizing minister. Love your wife, Terry. Th- 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 love her before the church. Because a lot of ministers who don't do that. There's a lot of, unfortunately, ministers who don't do that. Simple advice unforgettable advice from my dad that I'll take to my grave. Husband of one wife. Paul goes on. Sober-minded. Just a serious person. A clear thinker. Ecclesiastes says it's a time for laughter, but there's a time to be serious. The man of God knows that. The elder knows that. The officer knows that. Self-control. One who's not given to extremes emotionally, but uh, uh, is under control, not just of him, of the Holy Spirit who lives in him. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Galatians chapter 5. Sanders says, Many who drop out of missionary work do so because they are not sufficiently gifted. Not, not because they are sufficiently gifted, but because there are large areas of their lives which have never been brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. He says, Young men of leadership caliber can will, will work while others waste time. They will study while others sleep. They will pray, pray while others play discipline and hard work and sacrifice that that, that is necessary. He, Paul uses the word respectable. Carries himself with dignity. Uh, hospitable. Genuine love for people. For strangers. There were The, the traveling uh, ministers needed a place to stay. They didn't have a lot of healthy ends in those days. The Hospitality was very important. Able to teach. Skilled in handling and communicating the scriptures. And that's true for for both ruling elders and teaching elders, teaching elders have the task of maybe publicly in bigger crowds, but all of us have the responsibility of of handling acri- accurately the word of truth in our homes, in our in small gatherings, in the congregation, and elsewhere. The second category is reputation outside of the household of God, and it begins with not a drunkard. This this involved this this is this is addiction alcohol and other, other kind of outside substances that are addictions. Addictions reveal something of the heart. They, 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 we know there's a medical component in, in sometimes, but it, but it reveals something in the heart, something that's, that's not depending totally on, on, on God. And um, there are certain things, of course, that are, we're, that are totally forbidden by God's Word, and there are other things that are permitted in moderation. Just a few things. So, totally forbidden. Illegal drugs. Totally forbidden. Gambling addictions, sexual addiction, porn addictions, forbidden in scripture, totally. And there are some things that are allowable in moderation. Some say that they have a food addiction. Does that mean you stop eating? I hope not, but but moderation. Video games, sports, other uh, entertainment or hobbies, uh, internet. Those things are not bad, but in moder- moderation is what God's calling us to. But addictive behavior is a sign that uh, something is not right in our hearts. He also calls, he moves on, uh, not violent or not or or, or, or not quarrelsome, but, but a gentle person. God calls uh, the leader to not be one who wants to fight every battle, but but lets God fight his battles. He trusts God. He's, he seeks to be a peacemaker. He doesn't want to try to to win every argument. Doesn't even try to incite arguments. He trusts God. He's not a lover of money. Paul addresses this even more in chapter 6, where, where there was probably a big problem in Ephesus of these leaders that were removed. removed that maybe they loved money too much. There's something there. In six, Timothy 6, he says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Love of money is root of all kinds of evil. Not a lover of money. And then he says in verse 4, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You know, if, if, if the leader's children are not nurtured in the faith, and there's legitimate concern. If there, if there is no evidence of his children respecting him, this is a problem. You know, that once children enter into adulthood, they kind of enter into a different kind of phase they're somewhat on their own, but still there's an influence that, that the leader can have, the family can have. The sad reality is it's tough being raised in a pastor's house, one elder's house, or a deacon's house. It's a tough on kids. Some of you know that toughness. Some of you have been there. You know what it was like to be, oh, you're the preacher's boy. Oh, you, you know that kind of ridicule that, that peers might give. Well, Craig and I have adult children, and some are walking with God and some are not. So pray for us. Pray for the elders and the deacons. They have children. Some are walking with God, some are not. That's important that we, that we remember that. God has a special place for our children. Satan brings deep, deep discouragement to leaders through their families. So pray for our kids. No, you know, it, it's tough to have to always continue to remind yourself that God, the perfect father, had some rebellious kids. We know that's true. But you've got to remind yourself of that sometimes. So pray for us that we would know that and that we would be praying for our children that we have a, a God who is still seeking them and that though they may be in the far country, prodigal land, they still always have home to go to when they come to their senses. Paul continues in verse 6, not a recent convert, maybe get puffed up with conceit, fall into condemnation. Very important. You see, at, at Titus, where, where he's, at Crete, where he sent Titus, um, it was a new church. Not, not, it was not a mature church. It was it a was fairly new church plant there. He didn't have the luxury of waiting for men to mature. Here at Ephesus, he has that, that luxury. See, it's not about filling a slot, Timothy. It's about finding God's men, finding the right people. And Timothy himself is fairly young. Remember that. So it's about spiritual maturity. Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Here's the principle he concludes there. The outsiders, so that he may not fall into the disgrace into the snare of the devil. Scandal always is a blight on God's church, and the outside world is always cynical and expected for another shoe to drop when it comes to God's people. Maybe, maybe you're... Skeptical yourself because you've, you've been um, around scandal, experienced some of the scandal. Preachers and priests or politicians are always in the news doing something that, that, that they know should that happen. Uh, a, a, a good book uh, was by a guy named Jawanza Kanufu. Um, it's called Where's Adam? Adam, where are you? If name it. He, he, in the book, he talks about a retreat uh, with 75 men where they discuss why church wasn't working for them. And they came up with 21 reasons. And the first reason was hypocrisy. Let me read how it starts. Many of the brothers said that there was too much contradiction between what was being said in the church and what was being done in the community. Dale, one man, said that he had never been able to reconcile as a boy how the pastor of the church who was married was always over the house making out with his mother. At that point, there must have been 30 to 40 brothers who had stories to tell about inconsistencies. There were ministers having affairs, ministers abusive to their children, ministers who said, don't do as I do, but do as I say. Ministers who lived extravagantly while their congregation was mild and squalor. Many brothers mentioned how they remembered when ministers who were the biggest dogs on the block and they just couldn't believe that they had changed overnight. They told how many brothers who had been Unemployed or had not been successful in the corporate world, had displayed a shingle, rented a storefront, announced they were minister, and now had a steady income and admiration from the community, primarily from women. Sad, but true. Reputation with outsiders, very important. In we saw the heard the scripture verse, Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus Contrast Gentile leadership with the proper understanding of leadership in his kingdom. The the key word was, you're to serve. The Son of Man came to serve. And your leaders in the kingdom serve. They aren't there to be served. Thirdly, the character of the deacons of the church. The character of the deacons. Character of the elders, character of the deacons. And again, we have a chart here. You can see that, that most of the things some of the things that he said have been already been said by elders so we're not going to look at all those things but there's a couple of them that, that, that kind of jump out at us Is one is not greedy for dishonest gain that's very similar to not, not a love of money but, but remember that the deacon's task involved handling of money and again we wonder if that was a, a real particular problem at Ephesus and he, then he says in verse 9 they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience a clear conscience very important phrase in the book of First. Timothy. He says in verse 10, let them be tested first. Uh, You don't ordain a deacon or an elder, that matter, so that they can start serving in the body, but because they're serving in the body. That's the orientation that Paul wants them to have here. Again, verse 12, this the whole thing of husband of one wife, managing of the family. Now, verse 11, we have to, to address verse 11, which is quite an interesting verse as we look at the context of this passage. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So, another chart here. You can see the third chart there. Just verse 11. One verse, and we need to pause here. The, the Greek word really does, isn't wives. The Greek word for wife is the word women. It's just women. It's not one marriage. It's, it's a general word. Okay? And so some translated wives, some translated deaconesses, others translated women. If I were translating, I would translate it women, (laughs) because that's literally what it is. I think the the, the structure of the passage is very important for us if we're to think, who is Paul talking about here? So let me say a few things. First, is he speaking of all women? Well, I think the context is talking about leadership, so he's probably talking about women who have some role of uh, of being recognized, okay? Is, is he speaking of the wives of elders and deacons, which is so what some people believe? Uh, well, I don't think so because of where it's placed. He, he, Paul places it not after elders or after deacons, but in, but in the middle of deacons. He places these, this thing about women. So I don't think he's talking about elders and deacons when he talks about women that's the way I read it there are are some reasons that people believe that he is the the third perspective is that he is addressing the wives of deacons and that's what the ESV translation has done for us the ESV says wives the wives of the deacons I don't like that translation (laughs) here's why why would Paul speak to the wives of the deacons and not say anything to the wives of the elders Can you answer that question for me. There are a couple answers that I've heard. I don't like those answers. I think there's something here about the deacons that he wants to say something about women in that context, but not in the elder context. uh, uh, Another passage that might shine some light on is 1 Timothy chapter 5, a chapter coming later in our book, which is about diaconal needs among women in the church. Now, with all that, let me say a couple applications. First for our denomination and then for us. The the contemporary discussion is going on about women's ordination. And many churches are having that discussion. It's not a simple discussion. Um, It gets into the nature of the service in the body, men and women, and the nature of ordination in the body. Um, In our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, many people, males and females, can be designated as fit to assist the deacons. This comes in the context of the deacons. And our book of order is very clear about that. This means that not everyone who does deacon work becomes ordained, whether male or female. There's a deacon work day coming up. That's not just for deacons. <laughs> it's for anybody who wants to serve. Clearly, these women that are talk about here are to serve in some official capacity because there's, there's some qualifications that are given here. So Paul's reminding Timothy that there are some standards or qualifications for them as well. But then he goes right back to talking more about deacons. It doesn't come at the end of the discussion of deacons. It's in the middle of the discussion of deacons. Verses 12, 13, he continues that discussion. In our denominations, there's some discussion about uh, whether the women there are to be ordained as women, as deacons, into the office of deacons, deaconesses is the term that's often used. As um, you look at the passage, you can see why that, 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 that question is raised. It's a, very, a very helpful paper was crafted by our denomination last year, and uh, giving a, a, a theological framework for how to think about this and practical guidelines on the role of women in our churches. I, I commend that to you. But I don't want you to miss this. What we're trying to do in our denomination is look at the the Scriptures. (laughs) We're trying to see what Scripture says. We want to submit our thinking and our minds and our hearts to God's Word. We We don't want to get swayed by the changing opinions of our world. So pray for us as the denomination as we seek to be faithful to God and to His Word. Now, specifically at our church, you know we have a women's leadership team. We have a women's diaconal team, helping the elders, helping the deacons. Uh, serving right alongside of us, and we want to continue to equip women as well as men, so they can serve uh, with joy and with skill. In our leadership class, leadership development class, we have men and women in that. We want women, especially, to be to be prepared to serve theologically as well as in other ways. This year, you ought to know that there's a women's task force that's been meeting to talking about the ministry of women in our church, and particularly after this, the denominational paper has come out, but also in our church. What, 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 how, can how, as a church, can we honor men and women working together uh, under the biblical um, uh, guidelines? How can we do that better? We believe we can do better. We believe there are areas we can do better. There are areas we have not done well. We believe God has gifted both men and women to serve the body of Christ and to serve the world. We also believe, as Craig said last week uh, so clearly, that... Men and women have equal dignity, and they complement one another and serve together. And we affirm that God has established in the local church that qualified men elected by the congregation are to lead, serving under the direction of Christ, who's the chief shepherd. So so pray for us, and pray for the task force, men and women, as as we take a fresh look at these things, that that we might, again, submit our hearts and minds to, to God's Word. In the coming months, at some point you're going to hear a report, from that task force. Well, the, fact, the last thing as we wind up here is verses 14 to 16. it's he, actually talking about the deacons, this is interesting the last paragraph, these last three verses, where he says, Timothy, I want to come to you soon, but, but I, I've been delayed, so I'm sending this letter. This is where we get the per Here's something about the purpose of the letter for First Timothy. I'm writing these things to you that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. I want you to set things in order and make things right here at Ephesus. Jesus is the head of the household of the living God, the pillar, the buttress of the truth. And so then, then what follows is, is kind of there's, uh, there's three lines that are kind of uh, uh, rhythmic. There's, 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 they're little couplets. And most scholars believe that it was a poem or a hymn, a hymn that Paul has either grabbed or created. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. A musical message of him. (laughs) And who is the he? Well, the he is the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's he. He's the one who came down and he's the one who died for the leader of the church, for all members of the church. He's the one that the leader is to serve and to proclaim. He's the one who, who fills the heart of a leader that he might serve and proclaim. And so, so not just leaders, all of us are to imitate Paul here. See, leaders in God's household must not only hold to an orthodox doctrine in the face of heresy and confusion man, must have a heart of passion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ that issues sometimes forth in a praise, a song of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does here before he goes on. In the face of the drudgery, in the face of the trials of life, a leader has to have a song on his lips of praise to God. Great indeed, Paul says, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. See, godliness begins and it ends with faith in Jesus. And that's why Paul wraps up this chapter that way with this this hymn towards Jesus. You know, think about it. Godliness is really a mystery. How how, how is it that the death of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago transforms your life? Mystery, folks. (laughs) Until we think about it, until we understand what God's word has said. That, that Jewish carpenter died and rose again. And he's seated at the right hand of his father. And he's poured forth into us his spirit, empowering us, transforming us, changing us, giving us the measure, that measure of godliness that reflects him. Jesus, you see, is the mystery of godliness. It's Jesus. On the evening of January 2nd, 1981, I received a phone call from my mother. This was after our wedding rehearsal and rehearsal dinner. My mom said that that song by by Wesley, And Can It Be, all five verses? You gotta do all five verses? It's a long song. It wasn't like those short hymns we used to do in the Baptist church. It was a long song. Well, as he got carried away when he put that song together. And Terry and I, we said, no, we're going to do all five verses. <laughs> because, that, because that song told not just our story, but his story. And we wanted our wedding to reflect not just our story, but his story. Because, leaders of the church, your, your, your life isn't just about your story, it's about his story. We wanted those there to know that he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, that he emptied himself of all but love, and he bled for Adam's helpless race. It's mercy, immense and free, and oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? that long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. My eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth to follow thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God should die for me? So there's no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus. All in him is mine. Alive in him. He's my living head. And I'm clothed with his righteousness defined so bold I can approach his eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Because amazing love, how can it be? Thou, my God, died for me. Every believer, every leader, every individual who claims the name of Christ needs to understand that it's about Christ and not about them. But when it's about Christ, the mystery of godliness begins to be unfolded in their life. And they're changed. Changed.